Good day and welcome to Overdrive, a program with an infatuation about trains, planes and automobiles. I'm David Brown and in this program we have some feedback including we went to the opening of the Powerhouse Museum's 1001 Remarkable Objects, plenty of haute couture and jewellery but also a 1917 electric car that came to Australia in that year and was used for 30 years after. Our social media had a picture of two Triumph sports cars, separated by 20 years, perhaps the sublime to the ridiculous. We have a book review where a colleague received a book about car dealers in the 60s and 70s. Raunchy, yes. Honourable, well, maybe not. And finally, we get some response when we put up pictures of a beautiful Holden HQ two-door Monaro. Some didn't like the looks. Others had responses that shows nothing but adulation. In our feature interviews, we have David Berthon talking about his 1928 Rolls-Royce and Bernie Theon, who is a mentor to the students at Western Sydney University who are racing a solar car in about seven weeks' time. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au particularly for past programs, which are also podcast on iTunes or Spotify. And if you want to look up the social media of Facebook, Instagram or YouTube, search for Cars Transport Culture. This program was originally broadcast on the 2nd of September 2023. Time for a little bit of feedback, particularly comments mentioned on social media to our posts arising out of this radio program. I went to the opening night of the Powerhouse Museum's 1001 Remarkable Objects. I love the exhibition, but I found it a bit hard to mix with the crowd. I was particularly interested in how the powerhouse blends objects of aesthetic beauty with those that are very functional. Although even the functional ones, like steam engines and old electric cars, still have, like works of art, a sensory appeal to one's memory. I think the crowd were mainly about the fashion, which is fair enough. But in amongst the items of haute couture and jewellery, there was a 1917 Detroit electric car that came to Australia and was used for 30 years. The description they gave of the vehicle is as follows. Detroit electric car, brougham body, 80 volt, 10 horsepower, metal, upholstery, electric car co, Detroit, Michigan, 1917, used by Arthur and Dennis Allen in Australia from 1917 to 1947. They went on to say the first electric cars were built in the United States in 1891, and the Detroit Electric was the most successful of many on the market in the early 1900s. Even Henry Ford was a fan, purchasing several Detroit Electric cars for his wife. We also put up a picture of two Triumphs that we saw at the Shannon's Classic Motor Show. Now, the difference in their age was less than 20 years, but it showed how far car design had come. The first car was a Triumph TR2, built, I believe, between 1953 and 55. The other car was a Triumph GT6. Now, they were built between 1966 and 1973. This was a Mark III version, 
probably towards the end of that run. Now, the old Triumph, the TR2, looks very much like it was built in someone's back garage, while the 20-year-later GT6 has a beautiful, smooth, elegant style to it. Apparently, from the feedback we got, the reflection of the looks from very basic to very good is also a reflection of their reliability. Apparently, the first Triumphs were said by one test driver to be the worst car they had ever driven. Now, a book review of sorts. A colleague received a book because the author thought that he might be able to promote it. Now, my colleague felt that it was too raunchy for his audience. The book is titled Car Dealers and Other, inverted commas, Honourable Professions, but the subtitle is Comedy, Drama, Sex, Corruption, Truth. Now, each week I preview this program with my colleague Bruce Potter, who has an extensive career in marketing, and this is what he said. Look, I nearly fell off my chair laughing when I saw that because, you know, I've had a lot to do in the advertising business with car dealers. I have some very firm opinions. They have a vocabulary all their own, which I, I can't really explain on air because I'd never be back on air again. I must read this book, please. He went on to add... It sounds like a day in a car dealership, that's for sure. <laughs> i got to tell you, some of the terms they use, David, they call prospective people who come in and spend a lot of time looking around wood ducks. There's a woody in the new car section. When they trick a car up and put um, all kinds of tape and things along the side, they call that ape tape. <laughs> and there are so many other things I'd love to tell you, but I can't do it on air. But um, oh, please, yeah. the book, the book, I, the book. I, I haven't actually read this book, but uh, my colleague tells me that it's probably not one for the coffee table, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> And finally, we put up a post about the early 70s Holden two-door Monaro. We had some pictures of a beautiful lime green version that was at the St Ives Motor Show. My colleague and former car executive Peter Evans said, always thought it looked like a blob next to the XA, XB, XC coupe. They were the Falcons. I'll talk about them at a later show. Some comments said they liked the outside, but Bruce Shaw added that the silverfish fascia probably created a whole generation of epileptics. The RT Charger, that's the Chrysler, their dash looked as good as the rest of the car. But while there were a few negatives, there was a flood of adulation. Paul Bickford said the two-door Monaro is up there with the E3849 Charger as the best-looking cars ever built here. Gary Baker said one of the best-looking cars ever produced in Australia. Ian Newell said the HQ was the best of the two-doors by far. And Stephen Lavender said beautiful, simply beautiful. But perhaps the best indication of cult-like fascination was Brett Farley, who reflected on my comment where I said I thought the Holden looked pretty good. He wrote back and said, pretty good is a Van Gogh. This, the HQ, is art. You're listening to Overdrive. I'm sitting in a leafy suburb in Sydney in an office. On the wall is some glorious old photos of racing cars 
from the early era and of course pictures of family but inspiration is to also look out through the window and see in the garage a glorious historic motor vehicle. I'm with David Burthon from uh, 2GB Motoring Correspondence. David, what's the car? Well, it's a 1928 Phantom 1 Rolls-Royce. It has a Hibbert and Darren Imperial Cabriolet body, which sounds rather wordy. Hibbert and Darren were two interesting characters, both Americans. They worked at Le Baron in the design studio. Uh, they decided to go to Paris in 1925 and set up a design studio there and design bodies for the rich and famous. What used to happen, a lot of very wealthy Americans in the 20s used to travel to Europe and they, these two guys got the bright idea that when you bought a car in Europe and you took it back into America, you got special allowance on it uh, from a taxation point of view. So it was a car that you'd buy in. You might go to Paris, buy a Rolls-Royce, drive it around Europe with your family, take it back to America, and you actually got the car in. You purchased it for a lower price than you would in the American market. So, so they did very, very well between 1925 and 29, and they built... I think about 300 bodies, uh, of course, but the Great Depression finished them off in 29. Hibbard went back to America and Damon caught up with a, um, a Greek financier called Fernandez and he built bodies called Fernandez and Darren. So uh, they did that up until the 30s, mid-30s. But this car here, it's got a fascinating history. I mean, it was purchased new by a guy called Carlos Eduardo, Eduardo Bleck. Carlos Eduardo Bleck quite a mouthy name, from Lisbon in Portugal. And he was a mad sailor and he sailed in the 1928 Amsterdam Olympic Games for his country. And he did well and his father, as a present, bought him the car in February 1928. And his father was a prominent Lisbon motor dealer and Rolls-Royce France supplied the car. Hibbert and Darren did the coachwork and just... Unfortunately, I haven't been able to trace the history after his ownership, but it was subsequently found in 1996 under a shadow in France where it had been for about 30 years. So um, a friend of mine, a car collector in Sydney, Jorge Fernandez, uh, who was Spanish, he, um, he bought the car along with a French voisin and bought them both to Australia. And funnily enough, he never ever got round to restoring it. So... He showed me the car in about 2001 in his garage and I fell in love with the coachwork. I just loved the, the style of it. it you know, um, American designers always love long bonnets and this car has a long bonnet where the driver looks like he's sitting in the middle of the car. Long wheelbase. Uh, so you're driving the car from about the centre of the car. Beautiful ride. So Hibbert and Darren managed to achieve that. So it always appealed to me. And so sadly, George Oh, Yorga uh, is his Spanish uh, name. Yorga died about three years ago and his widow and I had always been good friends. Uh, we've been friends of the family and she said to me, you've always loved that car. She said, I'm going to sell it. Would you be interested? I said, yes, I'd love to buy it. And I had recently sold my 1913 Silver Ghost and um, I thought, yeah, so I bought it. Was it in reasonable condition? Was it The car, yeah, it was in, look, it was in surprisingly good condition. It had no top material that was missing but, and the seats were terribly tatty and mechanically it needed doing. 
a yorker had started. The only thing he'd done on the car was get the engine reconditioned, and that was about three-quarters of the way through. Part of the deal in me purchasing it was that his widow finally finished that off. I had the gearbox reconditioned. We did the brakes, trued all the wheels up, new tyres, shock absorbers all needed detention. This model had hydraulic shock absorbers, so they all had to be reconditioned and it had to be trimmed. The big question mark was the actual top because it's a it's an interesting body. You can actually drive it with the show with totally complete covered, or you can drive it with a chauffeur compartment open because it has a division, wind up division, or you can have it as a total full down cabriolet, and the B pillars clip out and go into leather pouches in the running boards. So the B pillar comes out, and so it becomes a full convertible. So it's quite a, an unusual body. The body, the one thing that Hibbert and Darren did was that they, unlike a lot of coach, English coach builders who use timber, they did about 50% of the bodywork structure in aluminium. Oh. And, and frankly, after this, not in 28, in 29, they went totally to aluminium. They had a, a patented system for building bodies using aluminium framework. So the car is very strong, very rigid, and you can always tell a Hibbert and Darren body because it has three door hinges on the doors, as distinct from most English cars, only had two. Is this a unique car then, or did they do several like this? Uh, they did 14 car bodies like that on Phantom 1 chassis. I know of three. Aluminium is both lighter. Is that a, seen as an advantage as well as, of course, not rusting? Yeah, well, that'd be it. Yeah, rust, I suppose, would be a factor, but... Being enclosed in the body, not so critical, but just, you know, old cars by nature and the rough roads in that era, you know, played fair havoc with timber bodies. But the one thing that was missing, as I said, was the top. And I rang um, a friend of mine in England, an historian, Rolls Royce historian, Tom Clark, and I rang him, said, Tom, do you know of any other cars like this uh, in your travels? And he said, look, there's a guy in Switzerland has exactly the same car. 1928 in the same body. So his name was uh, Jürgen, uh, I can't think of his surname, but Jeff, really lovely man. I rang him up, had a chemical company, and he said, oh, uh, David, and his, his uh, Swiss sort of accent, uh, I'm only too happy to help. He said, I'll get my man to take detailed photos of the car in all its positions, with the hood up, down, part down, and uh, that was just so helpful to me to, so I could give that to the trimmer and get it trimmed properly. Because it, it's a bit of a trick to water seal these cars. I mean, the, the way it fits together, you know, make sure that it you know, doesn't, you don't get water in the car, so. A colleague of mine listened to some of your exploits and was overwhelmed and particularly appreciative that you actually use the car that you actually take it out on runs. Oh, yes. I, I mean, look, I love going for a drive. On Friday, I went for a drive just by myself. It was a beautiful day. I felt like king of the road. <laughs> the weather was absolutely perfect. There was no wind. It wasn't too hot. The car loved it, and I could just tell. I drove into the suburb here, and I remember that there was a gentleman that had a 1936 Cord. Oh, yes. And he very generously drove and chauffeured my son to his formal. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. And while there were those who had paid for and got a stretched limo, <laughs> this had an elegance to it. 
And I wonder whether that's where you are with your children or with your grandchildren. Yeah, well, they're the sort of they're the sort of things that you do. Go to school formals and yeah, yeah. friends' weddings, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you you must be on the list of <laughs> invitations yeah. to weddings. Well, let me say to you that at Eastern Creek on Sunday, I had four invitations. <laughs> So, yeah, so, you know, uh, people think that you've got a lot of time on your hands. But, uh, yeah. You're listening to Overdrive. Last week, I drove the Volvo XC40 Ultimate B5 SUV. Here is a mid-sized European SUV that is stylish and spacious. It has a somewhat edgy appearance with a boxy tailgate. It's a look that's grown on you. Inside and out, it's practical and comfortable. I particularly like the heated front seats with electric adjustments for the driver and the vertical style central touchscreen. Rear seats are spacious and comfortable. Boot space is equally spacious. The XC40 B5 is powered by a mild hybrid four-cylinder turbo petrol engine. There is reasonable power with 183 kilowatts and torque of 250 Nm. This drives through an all-wheel drive system and an eight-speed automatic transmission. At times around the suburbs, it felt a little slow to start with, but was smooth and easy to drive. Economy is rated at 7.2 litres per 100 kilometres, but we used around 10 litres per 100 kilometres around town. The Volvo XC40 Ultimate B5 Dark we tested was priced at 69690 including options, plus usual costs. I'm Brianna Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. We reported a week or so ago about the young students from Western Sydney University participating and having a team to put together a solar race car. And if there's any doubt that when you've supported your children in their early projects, making paper mache versions of volcanoes, and you wondered if it was going to lead to something important, well, this is a great example of it. how it is. This is a stunning project of very high technology. Now, the students do wonderful stuff, but they're also... They have mentors and supporters who have volunteered their time to help them along. One of them is Bernie Fion, has an Order of Australia, and he's the CEO of Fion Strategy and Design. Done some great things. I really appreciate and would like to understand what's behind this sort of commitment to helping our young people. Bernie joins us on the line now. Go, Bernie. G'day. How are you? Good, mate. Good. Now, how did you get to know about this student project? I've been associated with Western Sydney University for some time in a, a range of different roles as a tutor and a lecturer part-time, but I've certainly had an interest in automotive design all of my life, I think, from a very young age. In fact, it was the rebranding of Western Sydney University where they had uh, three really powerful TV ads and one of them featured the solar car. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's where I became yeah, really attracted to it. I'd already seen a little bit about it, but uh, seeing it on TV like that just reinforced that, hang on, this is only 15 minutes down the road from my place. If I get a chance, I should get involved. It's not small scale. It's intense and very professional. Absolutely. I mean, the, um, the students are onto their sixth car, effectively. Uh, one of them was a half-car model that they built during COVID. So effectively, this is the fifth working vehicle that they've done in about a decade. So, uh, yeah, they've got some impressive machines that they've put together over that time and, and including uh, had the success of winning the American Solar Challenge in 2018, I think it was. 
I think the vice chancellor wrote to the uh, American University. Uh, was that the story? And said, uh, you know, bad luck. He offered his condolences uh, after their, uh, they had had a winning streak and it was the first time in 18 years that anyone from any international university had, had won. And it just happened to be Western Sydney University. So, yeah, the Vice-Chancellor was very happy to offer his condolences. <laughs> I understand he didn't get a reply. <laughs> That's right. That's right. They're not only doing things in-house, are they? They're having to look at external suppliers and so on. Is, is that some of the areas where your thoughts were helpful to them? Well, I'm not sure how, how I've helped directly, but... At the uh, launch event that you were at, uh, I certainly had suppliers come up to us and their partners in a sense. You know, Some of them give great discounts as they uh, support the students. Some of them are just completely commercial relationships. But unprompted, more than one of them came up to me and said, this is the best team that they've dealt with in terms of management. Now, what that means, I guess, is planning ahead, engaging with the suppliers, communicating not getting caught out at the last minute on issues, having intelligent conversations about solving problems. A lot of that probably comes from some of the students themselves and some of them have got excellent management experience, You know, whether that's in retail at Telstra or a range of other jobs that they've got part-time. And even if we take the step back to the values of the team and you know, the team has, has sat down... And I've encouraged this. Um, you know, they may well have done it without me there, but they've sat down and identified what are their values. And you know, respect is one of them, and integrity is another. And safety is a is an important value that they realise is you know the top of the list. We can all theorise and write the buzzwords about doing that, but this is a practical application yep. where you learn the experience to recognise when is the time to apply those vague good concepts, it's when we apply them that they become a, a solid reality. Yes, yes, yeah. So it needs to be lived and it needs to be lived by, you know, the leadership team. It can't be bottom up. But then when the, you know, if the leader's having a, a tough week or something, then it needs to be embedded at that next level of leadership to sort of carry the leader through that period. And then, yeah, so it's a... I don't even know what symbiotic means, but I think it's a symbiotic relationship. <laughs> I watched those young adults and the way they interacted wasn't just, well, I've got to try and be you know, the key player on the team and I will remember only my performance, but the, that they spoke and interacted and, and encouraged me to talk to others that were part of it. And that that's... That's exemplifying the reality of what you wanted to you know, you want to instill. Yeah, that's right. And you know, so there's been there's been lessons along the way, and and you know, the, the team are full of people who have aspiration. Um, so they're all driven, and they all want to achieve something. They all want to achieve the best career, and they're all hungry to learn. Uh, so all of those things are great foundations to build a great team on. And you know, the the issues of egos and all. Sort of things. You know, it's a team. You saw that. You know, about 25 students working together. So there's all of the interpersonal relationship issues that you would get in any team. But it's been a real pleasure to be associated with them because you know they've got an objective and they they want to get it done. And they've been through the COVID years. 
like everyone else has, which means that a lot of them have been there four years uh, waiting for a race uh, because the Bridgestone World Solar Challenge is on every two years and 2021 was cancelled with no international travellers coming. So it's been four years since the last event. Their commitment is outstanding and they're very a very diverse group, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's, uh, I don't know how you want to measure diversity. There's many axes to, to measure that on, but on the simplest of them, the gender diversity, it is something that is being uh, focused on to improve that. But it is in line. In fact, it's probably better than the male-female split in engineering as a rule. Yes. So certainly the team are embracing uh, diversity in many forms and uh, really just united by that focus and desire on you know, working on an advanced manufacturing technique um, to put together a, a, a mode of transport that, that may help us in the future and may help us uncover ideas for a more sustainable future. Diversity in terms of some of the subjects that they study. Absolutely. It's not just engineering, it's communication. And I had a lovely chat with a young person who had been doing the computing and analysis for the artificial intelligence scheme to be able to, in real time, set the how the the schedule and things should be going. Yes, yes, yes. And that's that's the you know the inspirational thing. In many respects, the students are just applying their logic to it and not tainted by bad habits that have been developed. <laughs> and they're also happy to question their approach. So they're not locked into an approach that they've been doing for decades. The other side of, of the experience, especially what you're talking about there, is that in 2021, uh, it's all a blur the last few years, but in the last 18 months, might have been 2022, in fact, uh, we did, and it was 2022, we did the, uh, the road show. So the team put the vehicle that ran in the 2017 Bridgestone World Solar Challenge, same vehicle that won in the, the American Solar Challenge, it was on the road in New South Wales. We got an unregistered vehicle permit and drove it on the road over five days through regional New South Wales. And I presume met people out there, saw people in the country, perhaps travelled to areas they've never, you know, not travelled oh. to yet. There's a whole range of experiences. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And for many of the students, it's been one of the most memorable experiences and, uh, and intense, and, well, intense and intense. So they got to practise their camping skills. Um, <laughs> but also, um, you know, developing those skills in the real world and developing the relationships with their team. So this time in 10 weeks, they'll be celebrating being winners of the Bridgestone World Solar Challenge. That's the plan. The team is a real contender, but there's obviously a lot of competition from the Dutch, the Belgians, the Germans, the Americans, the Japanese and others. So there'll be a real international lineup with universities and other teams uh, with much bigger budgets than Western Sydney does. But like I say, I'm, I'm excited about the fact that this team is a real contender. Bernie, I've taken a lot of your time, but gee, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. No worries, David. Thank you very much as well. And that's Bernie Fion, 
who is in the design and business and financial professional expertise. He's inspired significant change on a global scale, but he's doing it in a very face-on, interactive way, including with our young students at Western Sydney University. This is Overdrive across Australia. Small hybrid sedans and hatchbacks should be more popular. This is my thought after driving the Honda Civic Hybrid last week. Honda Civic is a stylish smaller hatchback that has lost a bit of popularity over the last few years. And that's a shame as it's really very good. With sleek styling, long wheelbase for its size and low profile, it has some presence. Inside the Civic is well laid out and comfortable for the driver and passengers. I like the steering wheel and driver instrument layout. The dials are large and full of information. The large central touchscreen stands out a little but is user friendly and practical. Wireless Apple CarPlay connectivity is a bonus. Rear seats are as what you would expect for this size car and the boot space is practical and spacious. The standout feature is the hybrid engine. It's quiet, responsive and economical. We were using around 5.4 litres per 100 kilometres around town and that's outstanding. We drove all week, had a couple of longer trips and barely used any petrol at all. Overall, I liked the Honda Civic Hybrid hatch. Well worth a look, especially at around 55,000 drive away. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Bruce Potter, David Berthon, Bernie Fian, and Mark Wesley for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or for podcasts or social media, just search for Cars Transport Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.